and wish to wish all of you a blessed Holy Thursday. On Palm Sunday, I made the comment that Holy Week begins and mystery intensifies. And there is no greater mystery in the daily life of the Christian than that of the Eucharist, that bread and wine by the words of Christ that always accomplish what he sends them out to do and never returns to him void, are grace to bear the infinite weight of the divine presence of the Son of God, to feed us with his body and blood, forgive us our sins, strengthen us to resist sin, and give us a pledge, here and now, of eternal life. The Eucharist is so utterly beyond the grasp of the human mind that I understand, as a convert from Protestantism, why it is so much easier for nearly all the reformers, other than Martin Luther, to deny the Eucharist altogether, or declare it to be, at most, just a symbol. Mystery is a dangerous thing. Why? We quickly encounter its unsettling aspect. We are not in control of it. Our only options are to either submit to it, which is difficult, or deny it, which is easy. Submitting to it is difficult because man's arrogance insists on determining what is real and what isn't, which is rather comical, considering we don't understand 98% of the universe we live in. Good Lord, we don't even understand ourselves, and yet somehow we think we have an ability to understand the holy and what the holy intends or how the holy can work. It's just so much easier so more convenient to deny the mystery of the Eucharist or dismiss it as a symbol, thus doing away with any further bothersome reflection. Denying the reality of the Eucharist has some additional perks. It rather neatly does away with the need to have a church, or to have sacraments, or to have priests and bishops. It should be noted, however, that the denial of the reality of the Eucharist is a fairly recent development in Christian history. It did not begin until the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. I recall a conversation with a man who was once a Catholic, but joined a charismatic Protestant church that his wife went to. When I asked him why he left, he gave a number of reasons. Uh, the church is too large, uh, the church is too formal, uh, it's not intimate enough, it's too hierarchical, and a number of other reasons. When I asked him about the Eucharist, he said something rather curious. That is the one thing I miss, he said. I don't know why, but there's something about the Holy Communion in the Catholic Church that I don't find in my church when they offer something like communion. I told him that he never will find this mystery in his church since only two churches have a true, valid Eucharist, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. And he would do well to listen to his inner unease because it can become a moment of grace calling him back to truth.
Now, he was quite upset with my saying that, and I understood why. It is politically incorrect today to assert objective truth in an age in which all religions have been declared equal by our cultural elitists, and everyone's opinions have the unquestioned status of truth. So the man accused me of being arrogant to make such a statement and insisted I support it. I said it was never arrogant to assert truth. Arrogance occurs when people are belittled or verbally bludgeoned instead of respecting their freedom. God never forces one to believe what he offers. He invites and waits for one's free will to make a response. That is the risk he took when he endowed us with free will. I assured the man that while I disagreed with his choice, I respected it. But it was he who had clearly raised some doubts, and he was duty-bound to examine them carefully. At the end of our lives, we must all answer for the choices we made and why we made them. I then shared with him that Christianity has never been, nor can it ever be, reduced to a matter of personal opinion or personal belief. Christianity has at its core the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is also a historical person, who came into the world as one of us at a particular moment of human history, lived in human history, died in human history, and rose from the dead in human history, and will return in history to bring history to an end. This is important because Christ also did something in history that he intended to endure until the end of time. He established his church on the faith of the apostle Peter, and through all the apostles, he transmitted the task of proclaiming the gospel to the world and to celebrate what are called the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. These two central tasks were handed down generation after generation from the apostolic age to our own by the laying on of hands on men called to be priests and bishops. This is called the apostolic succession. Only the Catholic and Orthodox churches can trace their origin to this historical reality of the apostolic succession, have preserved it, and thereby have in every generation the assurance that when the Eucharist is celebrated, there can be no doubt that it is what Christ himself says it is, his true body, his true blood that he uses those ordained to be the instruments through which he makes himself present in the mystery of this incredible sacrament. No Protestant church can make this claim. Therefore, whatever kind of celebration they call a Eucharist is objectively not real, and indeed is only a symbol. The man asked me how it could be so certain that what I just told him was true. This, I replied, is where the age-old question becomes critical. What think ye of Christ? How do you understand him? How one answers will determine what one is prepared to believe.
One of our nation's founders, for example, Thomas Jefferson, thought Jesus was only a great moral teacher. And accordingly, Jefferson took it upon himself to rewrite the New Testament, eradicating all references to Jesus' divine nature and all the miracles. Interestingly, Jefferson insisted he was a Christian, which, of course, he was not. What think ye of Christ? If he is the Son of God, if he is one in being with the Father, if he shares the fullness of the divine nature of the Father, then that implies something we have to examine. Just as the Father's word accomplishes all that he sends it out to do and does not return to him empty, so too the Son's word accomplishes all that he sends it out to do and does not return to him empty. When he said to the sick, be healed, they were healed. When he said, your sins are forgiven, they were forgiven. When he said to lepers, be made clean, they were made clean. When he said to the lame, walk, they walked. When he said to three dead people, rise, they rose from the dead. His words were not the language of symbol. They were the language of reality. They brought into time and history the reality he sent them out to accomplish. This same principle applies to the mystery of the Eucharist. His words and their power are straightforward. Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is the cup of my blood. Do this in memory of me. That phrase, do this in memory of me, is not a request. Grammatically, it has the structure of a command. So why command what is only a symbol? It doesn't make sense. The passage of time does nothing to diminish the power of Christ's words. They bring now and will continue to bring into reality what he sends them out to do through the instruments of his priests and bishops. Bread becomes his body. Wine becomes his blood. The Eucharist is not a symbol. It is mystery. It is reality.